1 John 1, 7, it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. That has been one of my favorite verses, because I think so often as you look around the world that you live in, and often sometimes even when you look at the emotions that your own heart feels, you sense that darkness that can be around it. But the hope that God gives us is not that there will be no darkness. The hope that God gives us is even in the midst of that darkness, He will provide a light that can't be overcome. He will provide a light that even in the midst of all that black still shines. And that's the hope that I believe Christians have to hold to. It's not that everything will be sunshine and rainbows. It's not that everything will be perfect. It's not that the moment you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that it's just smooth sailing from that point forward. In fact, if you really listen to the words of Jesus Christ, he warns that the world will attack you only more when you declare that you belong to him. Our hope, though, is not in comfort. Our hope is not in worldly peace. Our hope is in that light that he puts in our hearts, that love that we get from him, and the trust that no matter what we face, we don't face it in the midst of chaos. We face it with a God who has a love and a plan for us. As we've been going through the story of Joseph, we've been seeing how chaotic his life has been. We have seen him go from being a favorite son to a rich and powerful man. We have seen him sold into slavery and hitting an unbelievable low. We've seen him work himself back up to, well, still being a slave, at least having authority and power and respect, only to have all that taken away and have him thrown into jail. We've seen him rise up in the ranks of prison so that he's basically running the place. And then finally, we see him escape out of jail and become the right-hand man of Pharaoh. And because of his love for God, because of the wisdom that God has given him, because of that loyalty and devotion to the Lord, God blesses greatly what he does. Today, though, I want us to look at what happens, and we're going to skip forward a bit to when Joseph is finally brought face-to-face with his brothers. Because to be honest with you, there is, in all of us, a little part of our hearts that longs for payback. Right? Have you ever had that moment where somebody does you wrong, and you think about and meditate and daydream and plan out what you will do to get them back one day? I I don't relate to that. I've never done that because I'm a pastor. Um, Clearly, this is only for you guys. Um, Right? We all think about those moments in our hearts. And then every now and then, you actually find yourself in one of those moments where it happens. Your offender comes back to you, and you now are in a position of power, and they need you. What do you do? And so where we pick up today in Genesis 45 is exactly that place. Joseph had a life. Joseph had a plan. Joseph had a direction. Joseph was moving forward. Joseph had this beautiful, wonderful life. But because of the animosity and hatred of his brothers, all of that was derailed. 
And while he never gives up, and while he keeps fighting, and while every step he takes, he takes one closer to the Lord, the reality is this was never what he dreamt for for his life. Right? As good as he's made it, the reality is he spent most of his life away from his family, away from his country, away from his father, away from the ones he loves. He has spent most of his life either as a slave or as a prisoner because of his brothers. So what happens when he wakes up one day to find his brothers at his feet? To find his brothers who hated him so badly they did all this to him now looking at him for help. What does he do? And see, I think this is a huge question for us. I think it's a huge question for us for a few reasons. One, it tells us something about love. See, brothers and sisters, Christianity is actually very, very simple. Love God, love people. Unbelievably simple. Love God, love people. It's in... Old Testament, it's in the prophets, it's in the New Testament, it's what Jesus says it's all about. Like everywhere you turn, anytime you ask God or his son or the Holy Spirit or anybody of faith to explain to you in the Bible what is Christianity about, you're basically going to get love God, love people. So that, complex, that, 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 that concept is not complex. The hard part is the execution. The hard part is living that out. And to be honest, where many of us fall apart is not the love God part. It's the love people part. Why? Because people stink. Even us, I know, even us, we don't want to admit it, but let's be real. This is just a room full of sin addicts. This is a room full of people who are all broken, who've all messed up, who all are addicted to sin in one way, shape, or form. Right now, some of us, our sin addiction is big, ugly, and unhideable, so everybody knows about it. We all frown upon it, and we all shake our fingers at it, and we go, thank God that's not me. And some of us, our sin addiction, it's a little bit easier to hide. It's deep here in the heart. No one knows about it. Us. Maybe those who are real close to us. But you know what? Every single one of us is that. Every single one of us is broken. Every one of us is a sinner. And every one of us is drawn to it. And we need the grace and love of God Amen. to help us escape it. Amen. And so it's important for us because when love is really shown, it's not how you treat your spouse. It's not how you treat your children. It's not how you treat the ones you care the most about. Because to be honest, you could find some pretty terrible human beings that were actually decent spouses and decent parents. You could find that. In fact, how often when somebody is brought up on a huge crime and they interview their spouse or their kids, they're like, I'm shocked. You know, the moms are always the ones, right? He was such an angel. We never saw anything. I can't believe it. My precious little baby. They just don't see the real question of love, though, is not how you love those that love you. It's how do you love those that hate you? How do you love those that hurt you? 
See, that's where love becomes strange. It's where love becomes weird. It's where love becomes noticeable to the world. When you say you love your wife, no one at work bats an eye about that. That's not to say everybody's marriage is great, but they go, yeah, you should. That's kind of the goal. But when you go, man, I'm praying for and I love my enemy. People go, wait, what? Talk to me about that. That doesn't make sense. And that was God's whole point. God's whole point was, if we only love those that love us, we look no different than anybody else. That's not powerful love. That's not godly love. That's not supernatural love. That's just human emotion. But when we show love to others, now that changes the world. And the second reason I want you to pay attention to this is about Thanksgiving. This is my favorite time of the year, and in some weird ways, Thanksgiving actually means more to me than Christmas, in the sense that Christmas has been stolen. Christmas, by our culture, has become about buying stuff. And don't get me wrong, I love presents, I love Christmas trees, I love the lights, I love the songs, I love all that stuff. But what we've let it slowly become is, is how much money can we spend? What things don't I have? It's all become about consumerism. What I love about Thanksgiving is often it's not about stuff. It's about love. It's about people. It's about thankfulness. It's about reflecting on where you're at in this moment and realizing, well, there's probably a gazillion things you could complain about. Maybe, just maybe, if you pause for a second, you could find some good things to be thankful for. Some things that have gone right. And as Christians, I think this is a huge skill that we need to have. I think both the way that we love our enemies and the way that we are thankful and full of gratitude for what we have are two of the biggest things that separate us from the world. Because the world doesn't do that. The world is all about reminding you of what you don't have. Or at least trying to convince you that what you do have isn't good enough. And so in this story, we're going to see both this strange love and also this strange thankfulness that Joseph displays for us. And I think those are powerful things for us. So open to Genesis chapter 45, and let's take a look at what happens here. In Genesis 45, let me kind of give you some context as you're flipping there. Everything that Joseph said was going to happen or that God revealed was going to happen to Joseph has happened. There were seven years of unbelievable abundance. And because of God's forewarning and Joseph's wisdom, they have stored. Egypt has stored grain. They have stored this excess. And so now that they're in seven years of famine, Egypt's okay. Because they've saved. They have surplus that they were set apart for a rainy day. And it's raining and they're good to go. But this famine has become so bad, it's not just Egypt. It's all of the Middle East. And Joseph wakes up one day to find that there are people from foreign nations coming to Egypt asking for grain, asking for food. And lo and behold, one group of travelers are his brothers. The same brothers who betrayed him, the same brothers who sold him as a slave, the same brothers that argued about whether they should kill him or not, now sit before him, they don't recognize him, and they come to him to have their life saved. And that's where we pick up in 45. It says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. 
And he cried. Have everyone go out from me. And so there was no man with him. And when Joseph then made himself known to his brothers, he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now I want you to pause right there. Can you imagine the emotions that were racing through his brother's mind at that time? I mean, first off, just think about the setting. They were probably already nervous. The Egyptians were notoriously racist people. There was the Egyptians, and there was everybody else. So here these Israelites travel from a long distance. Why? They're completely in despair. Famine has struck their land. They're unbelievably hungry. They're running out of options. The only good option is to go seek Pharaoh in Egypt and hope they'll have some mercy. So they show up probably in an unbelievably beautiful setting. You have Joseph probably sitting on some throne of some type because this guy is second only to Pharaoh. And here they come to beg for food. To be honest, even that alone, forget Joseph, would have been nerve-wracking. Their life's hanging the balance. They're in a foreign land. They have no army. They have no chance of surviving if these guys turn on them. And they're basically begging. Then as they're doing that, already terrified and afraid, they realize the brother they betrayed is the guy who controls all those things. And even think about the first words we hear from Joseph. One, is my father still alive? What does that tell you immediately about Joseph's heart? To me, what it reveals is that him being separated from his father has hurt his soul every single day. Every day he's thought about his dad. And after a couple decades, he just, his dad's still alive. Is he still alive? Then second, what does he say to him? When they don't believe it's him, he goes, no, it's me. Your brother Joseph, come closer. Remember me? The one you sold as a slave? You're kind of hoping he doesn't mention that if you're the brothers, right? You're kind of hoping in that moment, maybe he's going to like, hey, your brother who we used to play ball with, right? No, your brother who you sold as a slave. Can you imagine the terror and confusion that was in their hearts in that moment? Can you also imagine how Joseph felt? I mean, I think if we're all honest, we're not above thoughts of revenge. I think if we're all honest, we can actually look back at moments when we've taken revenge, maybe in, hopefully, in very petty ways. Hopefully not in any extreme ways, or we need to talk to law enforcement. <laughs> but we've all probably done that. Here's Joseph. He could do anything he wanted. Joseph literally can make his own laws. He could strike them down dead right then and there, and not a person in the world would say a thing about it could do that. But look what happens. 
In verse 5, he says, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. Listen to that again. He says, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Do you see Joseph's perspective on this? Joseph's smart enough to realize that his brothers had no godly intent whatsoever when they beat him, threw him in a pit, and sold him to slave traders. He understands that there was no moment of that where these guys were like, I think this is what God wants us to do. He realizes none of them were like, I think, I think one day God's going to use Joseph as a slave in this foreign land to save the world. He doesn't think that happened. He knows their intent was evil. He knows their intent was full of hatred. He knows their hearts were dark in that moment. But here's what he knows. God's bigger than all that. God's bigger than their hateful hearts. And so while his brothers were acting in anger, in hatred, in violence, Joseph goes, yeah, but you guys were playing checkers and God was playing chess. God used your hearts of anger. God used your hearts of rage. And he used you as instruments to get me where he needed me. And not for bad, but for good. God brought me here to save people's lives. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to pause there and think again because these are these places where we have to kind of put ourselves in the sandals of the character. Because that's easy when we're reading a few pages to go like, oh, cool, so he's forgiving, that's awesome. Don't just read by the fact this is decades. Decades away from his family. What Joseph is willing to forgive in this moment because of his perspective of God's power and love is a decade as a slave, a decade as a prisoner, two decades away from his family, his friends, and his loved ones. He is willing to look at that chunk of time and go, I'm willing to let that go. Because I know God had purpose in it. So what I'm saying to you is he's not forgiving something small. This wasn't at Thanksgiving dinner the brother called him an idiot. No, these guys intended to ruin his life. In fact, they probably didn't even care if he lived. I can't imagine the lifespan of an Israelite slave in Egypt was very long. So we're not talking about a small offense. We're talking about a huge one. Probably as big of an offense as you can do against someone, except maybe going after their children. And Joseph goes, it's okay. God had a plan. God had a plan. And so brothers and sisters, this just shakes us because it makes us look at our own lives differently. Many of us, when we are in these moments of darkness, we feel like God has abandoned us. We feel like we're alone. We feel like he's not working on our behalf. And what we do then is once we've cut ourselves off from him, well then the anger and the hatred and the darkness, we start wanting to inflict that on other people. 
I mean, this is just human nature. I'm not proud of it, but I'll admit, I've had very stressful days at work where I come home and immediately I'm a jerk to the kids. Right? Uh, the fuse is lit. There's not a lot of patience. I'm kind of already at wit's end. There's probably some people I've wanted to have some very specific conversations that were animated with at work, but couldn't because I'm not in the right position to do so. So you come home and your kid does something wrong, what do you do? They get a little bit more fire than they probably should have deserved. This happens to us all. And that's what we need to pay attention to. This love of people and this this perspective of God's, they're linked. When you cut yourself off from God, you're going to torch all your relationships with people. Because people are sinners. People are evil. People are broken. And that's not to say everything they do is bad and evil. But if you want to look hard enough at any individual in this entire world, you can pick them apart as broken people because that's what we all are. All of us. But it's the perspective that God gives you of forgiveness and grace and love and peace that reminds you to extend those things to other people too. Right? Why can Joseph look past what his brothers did to him? Because he realizes God was over all this stuff. God's bigger than this. God brought me here for a reason. God has used this for good. And that goodness hasn't just impacted me. It's impacted other people. So how can I sit here and be angry at you for that? When God was working. This perspective that God gives enables us to be graceful with others. And we need that. We so badly need that. And not only do we need that as the people giving the grace, but also as the ones receiving. I'm a mess up. I'm such a mess up in life. There are moments in my life where I have intended to do things to bless someone and instead made them angry. You ever done that? You ever like planned something, set an action in motion, started doing things, and your whole hope and intent that this was really going to make somebody happy, but you're so bad at executing it, you end up hurting them instead. And you're like, how did this happen? I don't even know how I messed this up. But that's what we do. So you know what? Not only do I want to extend this grace to others, but I sure as heck hope people extend this grace to me. Because here's what I can tell you. If we love each other, if we serve with each other, if we live with each other, at some point you'll hurt me, and at some point I'll hurt you. That's a guarantee. What we need in those moments is the perspective and the love and the grace and the peace that God gives to cover over all that. That's why Scripture tells us love covers over a multitude of sins. And so Joseph has this unbelievable perspective that, yes, what's happened did not just happen by accident. God has watched over all of it. And in fact, he is thankful that God has done this because it has preserved life. Now, there's a couple of verses we've looked at a few weeks in a row, but they remind us of why this perspective is here. 
we have to be thankful because God works all things to good. See, brothers and sisters, I think sometimes you and I have this wrong perspective where we limit what God can use. We think God only uses the good. God only uses the holy. God only uses the righteous. But God's not limited. God can easily take a dark, painful, ugly moment and use it for awesomeness. And as I said last week, that's what the cross is. That's what the cross is. For centuries, the world was shocked that we used the cross to identify who we were. They're like, that's a symbol of torture and death. That's the instrument your Lord was crucified on. And now you proudly display it? Why? Why? Because God took what was death and made it life. God took what was defeat and made it victory. God took evil and made it the most wonderful blessing of history. And if he can do that with that, I don't think there's anything I can bring him that he can't do it with. That's why. So guess what? you got an evil, horrible enemy in your life. God can still use them. you got a, a, a life-ravaging disease in your body. God can still use that. You have a relationship that is full of anger, animosity, intention. God can still use that. The beauty of God, because he's perfect, is he can take feeble, broken, ugly things and use them to do good. Amen. He is not limited by the instruments in his hand. He can do anything he wishes. And so we have to understand that. In fact, I would caution you that sometimes it is in those darkest moments of your life that he is doing the most. Because here's the reality for a lot of us. When things are going smooth, do you know what most of us tend to do with God? We tend to distance. Right? We tend, we tend to go like, I got this. Like, hey, I'm doing pretty good right now. Like, you know what, God, hey, you really don't need to spend any attention here. I got things rolling. Now, these guys, they need you. Those people, they got some problems. You should probably spend your time there. I got this. My plans are working. I got talent. I got ability. I'm on fire. I'm on a roll. I'm good. And we have this tendency to pull away. And if you ever want to believe this or just see facts of this, look at our nation. Whenever we are prosperous, whenever our economy is doing well, whenever we are strong and not at war, what do we do as a people? We bicker and argue and yell and fight and don't go to church. And the moment tragedy strikes, the moment a real enemy appears, the moment that things aren't going so well, what do we tend to do? We pull back together and we pull back to church. 9-11 was a devastating moment in our history. But it was amazing that the response of so many who had never been in church was to come to church. To remember that all of our differences, we were still Americans. To remember that we probably needed God. We needed His love. We needed His grace. We needed His power. We were reminded that we needed there to be someone above us to save us. 
But when things are going good, we tend to forget that. And so, brothers and sisters, what I encourage you is to try to have the perspective of Joseph. A, a perspective that reminds you, God's never lazy. God's never asleep. God's never abandoned you. He just might be working at a level you can't see. On things you don't understand. In Genesis 50, uh, 19 through 20, it says this. This is Joseph again at the end of his life. Or I'm sorry, not the end of his life. The end of his father's life. So he's forgiven and given grace to his brothers in this initial meeting. Then for decades they lived together, but then finally Joseph's dad dies, and the brothers are terrified. They're terrified that the only reason Joseph was good to them was because he didn't want to hurt dad's feelings. And so they're terrified that when dad dies, Joseph will go, hey, you know that revenge I said I wasn't going to do? Now I'm going to do it. But here in Genesis 50, at the end of his life, here's what we see. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. Joseph's first and foremost focus in life is, is what is God doing with me? Where am I with God? And so, brothers and sisters, I encourage you to think not this season about your thankfulness for the stuff you have, but for the relationships you have. And most importantly, do you have a right relationship with God? If I can truly say, the God of this universe, the God who created all, the God who knows all, does all, sees all, the God that made it all, that he knows me through and through, and he allows me to call him father. And how can I have a bad day? If I know I have a God that was willing to die to wipe me clean of my sins, a God that loves me so much that he has covered me in his righteousness, and that I know when all this turmoil is over, I will be in paradise with him. If I know that, tell me why my heart shouldn't be thankful. And we don't even have to go that far. If we even can just look around and realize that God's in my life. And God is using the circumstances around me. God is using the relationships around me to do his work to share a little bit of love, to share a little bit of peace, to share a little bit of kindness, that God's letting me reflect his light even a little bit. How beautiful is that? How thankful can we be? I won't take you through them all because we don't have that much time, but I can be honest, the older I get, the more I look back at what I thought were troubling times and seasons of life, and I'm so appreciative of them. It is often in those periods that I have grown closer to him, learned more about who I am, and made better decisions that have led me to what I would consider the victories of my life. It was in a dark stretch of life where I thought things were chaotic, 
and confused that I actually started hearing the call from God to become a minister. And I thank him so much for that. Now it's funny because if you had met me in that season, all you would have heard from me was complaint. All you would have heard from me is like, I don't know what God's doing. I don't know what the plan is. Can't be this. This doesn't make any sense. But I thank God so much that that happened. And to be honest, what terrifies me is, had my plans come true, I might have driven a long way before ever seeing where he was calling me. And the older I get, the more I see that. Often these valleys are unbelievable gifts because they wake us up. They draw us to him. And they help us start to see the world around us, not from a worldly perspective, but from a godly perspective. And that's what we need. And what you see, brothers and sisters, is once you have that, once you have that perspective to see the world around you, not just from the way you want to, but how God does, it becomes a whole lot easier to extend love and grace to others. And so the biggest thing I hope that you will be thankful for this year is not your house, not your car, not the money you have in your bank account, however limited or how much that may be, but thankful that you have God the Father in your life, that you have the confidence to know that even if you're in the dark valley of death, even if you're surrounded by your enemies, you have the good shepherd right there by you with this rod and his staff protecting you. That even in that valley, he sets that table for you and he lets you eat and he lets you know, I got this. I've got this. To know that you're not alone in that darkness, but that his light will shine and it cannot be overcome. That's the greatest gift we have. That's the greatest thing we have to be thankful for. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and we're just so thankful for your word. We're thankful, Lord, that in your word you give us these stories to look back at that remind us not only of, Lord, what you have done, but what you can do. Or the fact, though, Lord, that just the way you love Joseph, just the way you fought for him and protected him and planned for him, you do the very same thing for us, Lord. To remind us, God, that if you're the God who can take the evil of his brother's hearts and turn it into a blessing for the world, then, Lord, you can do the very same thing in our lives. Amen. Father, we're so thankful that we are your children, that you've wiped us clean of our sins, that you've washed us in the blood of your Son and called us righteous. That, Father, we have the peace of knowing that no matter how hard this journey may be, at the end there is you. Amen. Father, we love you. We cherish you and we are thankful for you, your kingdom, and this family you've given us. And in the wonderful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. As Maria uh, comes up and leads us in song, I'll be up here at the front, Brother James and uh, Brother Justin and Brother Matt will be in the back.
there's anything on your hearts that you want to pray with somebody about, whether that's learning more about how to become a Christian or, or whether there's just something in your life you want somebody else praying about, feel free to come up and talk with us. And as always, if you don't feel comfortable coming up during service, seek us out after. We are always here to talk with you and to pray with you. Maria? Let's all stand.
people said? Amen. Amen. Okay, a couple things. So one, remember, if you did not bring your shoebox today, please bring it by Wednesday and just set them here in the back. We'll get those uh, out to the distribution centers this week. I think everybody who did participate with those. Uh, second, you have another thing to be thankful for. I finished a sermon before 1215. We will actually eat around lunch. This is, this is kind of a miracle. You've kind of witnessed a miracle. Um, Let's go ahead, and I'm going to ask you to say one more prayer with me. We're going to bless the food. That way you guys can just march on in there and start eating. Parents, we do ask that you stay with your kiddos and help them out getting their food. Um, but let's have a good time of fellowship and, and eating. And try to get some vegetables, folks, just a little bit. It'll balance out all those desserts on there. All right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for everything you do for us. We know, Father, every single day of our lives, there are probably thousands of blessings we receive that we don't even know about. Thank you for your love, for your compassion, for your son, for so many countless things. Father, I pray that as we dismiss from this room, Lord, and go to take a meal together, that you will bless the food that we eat and you bless those that eat it. And may the conversation, Lord, be nourishing to our souls. Amen. Father, we love you. And in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Before you go, go ahead and we're going to hold hands across the aisle and we're going to sing the doxology also. <clears throat> Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Everest, go eat.